0: You both. I've hated you ever since I can remember. I hate you, and I wish you both had
1: cancer. Cancer? Yes, in the head. Huh? I'm as
2: mad as hell, and I'm not going to take this anymore. Pay no attention to that
1: man
3: behind the curtain. Are you telling me you built a time machine? Kind of a DeLorean? This is.
0: Uh oh. Sounds like somebody's got a case of the mundos. <laughs> Hello there, children. Hey, hey,
2: kids. <laughs> Don't worry, I got an idea. And now the host of the stupid cancer show,
1: Matthew Sack. Woohoo! Not that there's anything wrong with us. Because he has a lot of chips <laughs> by. Right.
2: Hello and welcome to episode 388 of the stupid cancer show, the voice of young adult cancer. I'm your host, Matthew Zachary, a proud 20-year young adult brain cancer survivor coming to you now from the chemo deck, our fabulous studio in downtown Manhattan. Broadcasting since 2007, the Stupid Cancer Show is a production of Stupid Cancer, the largest charity comprehensively addressing young adult cancer, online at stupidcancer.org.
1: I'm Mallory Rivera, program manager and co-producer of The Stupid Cancer Show, welcoming all our first-time and returning listeners. Never miss an episode by subscribing to the podcast on iTunes and following us on SoundCloud.
2: It is not okay that 72,000 young adults are dying with cancer each and every year. So, got cancer under 40? Sucks, huh? Time to get busy living, folks because the Stupid Cancer Show is changing the world one chemo infusion at a time. We have a great show, Stupid Risk, a cancer in the family. Dr. Theodora Ross is a leading researcher on cancer susceptibility genes, as well as a practitioner who specialized in treating breast cancer for more than a decade. She now cares for All types of patients who have a family history of cancer and is also a carrier of a cancer-causing mutation and a young adult survivor of melanoma herself. Dr. Ross joins us to discuss her book, A Cancer in the Family, which mixes memoir with science. And our Survivor Spotlight on young adult breast cancer fighter, Katie Campbell. It's going to be a great show. Hello, Mallory and Noel. Hello. How are you?
1: Oh, you know just ducky
2: on this fabulous you haven't seen hamilton yet have you
1: <laughs>
2: i certainly have not no it, it,
1: it's a sore point but i i did maybe stay up until uh, way too late trying to find all of the clips of hamilton winning all of the things yeah
2: he did a really good, good job at the uh, at the awards
1: uh they were all phenomenal uh, the entire award tony awards were yeah, well. the tonys for those who are not theater geeks like myself um it was pretty phenomenal all of the, all of the, the feelings and yes. the Hamilton.
2: Yes, good stuff. All good stuff. Um, so this show is about risk, and I, I figured I just might as well ask you guys at the top of the show. Um, <clears throat> would you get all right? So, A, you're here. You work at a cancer group. B, thankfully, would you have not had cancer personally. Would you ever want to get just screened, checked, sequenced to see what your or is, is ignorance bliss or just wait and see G-
1: genetic testing? Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean. I'm, I'm just
2: curious. I mean, personally speaking, I coincidentally before we even spoke of that, this was looking up genetic testing a month or two back. And oh, yeah? So I guess that speaks in and of itself that I'd be interested. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, I I don't really prescribe to the ignorance is bliss thing, yeah. but yeah.
1: Yeah, I I actually agree with that sentiment. I have a uh interesting history family wise, uh so I would would get screened absolutely. Yeah. Sometimes knowing and being prepared and knowing the things helps.
2: Yeah, because we're going to talk about that on the show today. Um, our our guest, Dr. Theodore Ross, um, her uh, whole family had cancer and she worked in risk and still didn't get tested herself. Yeah, until until she had cancer herself.
1: It's, it's a fascinating story. Yeah. And it's a fascinating book that she's written as well.
2: There's an organization called 23andMe, which was founded by, um, I think it's Sergey Brin's wife of Google. And um, a woman named Linda Avey. And uh, it's like basically at Walgreens now. You can spend 100 bucks and get a spit kit. And they send your DNA off to the world of uh, fabulous science and discovery. And they come back to you with a chart as to how you are you. They don't go into cancer risk because that's kind of crazy serious, But it's simple things like, oh, you shouldn't eat beets. Yeah. Or caffeine only works well on you if you have it at night.
1: I think it's it's pretty fascinating. Yeah, especially the the caffeine bit. How fast <laughs> does your body metabolize caffeine? Yes, no, it's, it's pretty... fascinating.
2: And our our, our chairman emeritus, Doctor Leonard Sender, years ago, he was one of the first. Of course, he was one of the first out of the gate get the test, and he confirmed what he always suspected his whole life: he is immune to caffeine. Yeah, immune to caffeine.
1: It's definitely yeah. it's it's interesting because I would kill myself. <laughs> it, it's interesting to know what what makes you you on a. Yeah, On a biological basis. It's pretty crazy. But it is pretty intense.
2: Well, that weight loss thing that I did this uh, this January went a very similar thing. They you, you, they do a spit test and they sequence your genes and they decide what nutrients your body does and does not process well compared to combining with other nutrients. So you shouldn't have these vegetables and you shouldn't have these fruits, but you should eat these volumes and quantities of things not. Together, but yes, together. And this, these cheeses are not good. It's amazing.
1: Yeah, if you look at from at it from a very scientific standpoint, it, I mean, it makes sense. If if we all have slightly different breakdowns, that different breakdowns would better support our body of different things.
2: Yeah, and the same science says that once you've hit your weight by forty five, don't even try to lose or gain anymore. That's your yeah. body. Your body is your body. <laughs>
1: your body is your body, and um, there's only so much you could do about yeah, it.
2: By forty-five, yeah, I got three more years to go. So anyway, so we got a good show. Um, nothing really huge in the news. There was that really nice story you posted on Friday about that um, that young man and yes, the prom
1: who took his his mother to the prom. Yes, very, very sweet seventeen-year-old gentleman. That that is a gentleman right there.
2: Yeah, I mean, it also speaks to how we're looking to reach uh, teenagers whose moms and dads are sick as well. Yeah. And we want to be that community for anyone that's young touched by cancer. So we've got to find that kid and get him on the show. I'm on it. You're on it. I'm on it. All right. Make it happen. Mm -hmm. All right. Well, let's, uh, let's kick off the show. Let's get Katie. In our spotlight, Katie Campbell, 32 year old, been living with stage four triple negative breast cancer for the last three years. She's an advocate speaker and author of a forthcoming book about her experiences. Please welcome to share her story, the one, the only, Katie Campbell. Hello.
3: Hello. Thank you so much.
2: The issues um this particular show is about risk, hereditary risk, genetic screening, preventative care, uh, prophylactic mastectomies, uh, pretty much everything that, you know, is annoying when you're a young person because it factors into everything else. And yeah. then we yell at our moms and grandmas for having breast cancer and not telling us to get screened. So there you go. Mm-hmm.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: But you're, you, also, you not only combine uh, metastatic cancer, uh, it, it is the triple negative cancer as well, which is a, uh, another subgenetic thing of breast cancer, which doesn't get a lot of attention, and that we know all too well because of Andy Goodman, our late uh, friend here at the podcast. So mm-hmm. your yeah. story it's so important that these stories of living with cancer or metastatic cancer get told cuz they tend to fall by the wayside when all the pink ribbon nonsense says <laughs> otherwise and I know we both have yeah. a, a a mutual hatred of all that <laughs> pink washing.
3: Yes, yeah, absolutely. So yeah, like- I, I think stage 4 cancer stories are left out. Of the pink washing, I think triple negative stories are left out. Um, and I think uh, young adults are are in many ways left out. So, yeah, I have lots of feelings about <laughs> October in general.
2: Yes, exactly. Well, you're no stranger to being the consummate young adult cancer advocate and survivor. You've been to First Descent. You've come to CancerCon. You won the Outliving It Award, which I didn't realize I had, but that's super cool. So congratulations on that. And Thank you. and Thanks. um you know you're writing this I mean I've been watching you on Facebook this this book uh you've been fundraising for it it looks incredibly exciting I want to talk to you about it um but let's let's start at the beginning here you know how sure. how does someone get diagnosed with triple negative breast cancer
3: Um well I was uh, I found a lump obviously I was 30 years old so I was not obviously at the point where I needed to be screened or anything, getting mammograms, found a lump, went to my doctor. I, I feel kind of lucky in that it all seemed to happen pretty quickly. Unlike, you know, you hear the stories about misdiagnoses and doctors not believing young adults, but, um, you know, biopsy, mammogram, ultrasound, all of that, like in one day. Um, and like four days later, I, was, I got my diagnosis in September of 2013, They told me it was triple negative. I was like, I have no idea what that means. (laughs) Exactly sounds sounds triply bad somehow. Um, But um, but it it took me a couple months to realize that triple negative breast cancer, you know, much more aggressive, tends to be harder to treat. um, You know, comes with a lower survival, um, rate of survival, all of that stuff. So, but I was kind of put through the normal course of of treatment that everybody else goes through. Um, but for me, it didn't really work. So I had 20 rounds of chemo over nine months. Um, uh, and the chemo never really had any impact on the cancer, um, which was a bummer having to go through that and not seeing any results. Um, and then double mastectomy. Um, and then and speaking of prophylactic mastectomies, um, for triple negative breast cancer, there was actually a, an improvement in survival rate. So, um, to to get the double mastectomy, so that's why I did that. And then I had radiation. And then, like three months later, it was the cancer was back in a in a distant lymph node, making it stage four. Um, and I've been dealing with that ever since. So,
2: so a lot of things there to talk about. <laughs> Uh I, I, I mean, just from a completely superficial perspective, I'm amazed that you went from diagnosis to treatment so quickly and yeah. that this is a kind of a silent disease. How could you possibly know that this was lurking in your body and all of a sudden, boom, stage four?
3: Yeah. Yeah, yeah. It's really scary. And um and I had actually that summer that I was before I was diagnosed. I was like, oh, I'm turning 30. I should like maybe have a primary care physician, like maybe like think about my health for, you know, 10 seconds. Like let's focus on it a little bit. So I had, I was going around seeing primary care physicians and got, you know, breast exams and at every doctor I saw until I found one that I liked and no, nobody felt anything like it was. And then like a month later I had, it was a golf ball sized tumor. So it kind of came out of nowhere. Um, which I think just shows how aggressive this this thing is, right. unfortunately.
2: No and, and, and again, just to kinda crush the trolls that stalk our Facebook pages, you were vegan and are vegan. Yeah. And in health and yeah. in shape and just doing your thing and it, it yeah. irrelevant. It totally irrelevant.
3: Yeah. Yeah. No, I was I was vegan. I was um I was super, you know, like super athletic exercise all the time, don't, I mean, speaking of genes, like, I don't really have a family history, I don't have any of the genes, um, you know, they've tested, like, 30 or something at this point, and I I don't have any of them, so no warning signs, you know, nothing.
2: So, you are currently married, were you married when you were diagnosed?
3: Yes, yep.
2: So, can you talk us through that?
3: (laughs) (laughs) Well, What it was like, what well, it's been like.
2: Yeah, we, you, you know, we we have a lot yeah. of couples, and we have stories of 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 uh, couples that had just moved in together to become domestically compatible, mm. and then cancer cancer hits before anything else happens. Yeah. Your husband yeah. sounds like a champion. Can you talk us through what it was like for him yeah. and how he's managing now? Yeah,
3: I, and I I um actually devote an entire chapter to this in the book because I think it's so important. I think it, relationships are such important part of young adult cancer journeys, but, um, my, my husband has been fantastic. Like he, he was, um, uh, for better or worse, he was in grad school when I was diagnosed. We'd been married for five or six years at that point. Um, and he was in grad school. So he was, his schedule is flexible. He was able to come with me to my chemo, you know, my infusions, um, he came with me to almost every doctor's appointment in that first year, which is incredible. Um, but it took a toll. I mean, it was hard. I think the transition from husband wife to caregiver patient, and we always joke that, like,
1: um,
3: he has a really high tolerance for pain, and I really love, like, feeding people chicken soup. So, like, obviously, our role should have been reversed. Right. <laughs> like, um, I mean, I would never wish cancer on him, but, like, you know I'm the caregiver um and and he had to kind of figure out what that role looked like for him, so um it's been a struggle, but I think at this point um and then being stage four, you know, like that, obviously lots of discussions about um and just concerns about what's the rest of our life look like, you know, what happens if you have to go on without me, what does that look like and just I think at this point we're at we're we've reached um, we have reached the point where we. Just try to sort of treasure the moments that we have together. Like even small, insignificant things are really important to us, and we don't take anything for granted. And um, I think so. Yeah, I feel super lucky to have him. Um.
2: And and this is all so true and so real. Uh, you did come to CancerCon 2015, our inaugural conference in Denver. Did your husband yeah. come, or what was the experience like for you?
3: Yeah. Yeah, he came. Yeah, it was great. Um, I think it was really wonderful to... That was like the first opportunity I had to really bring him into the the young adult cancer world. Um, and I think it was just really nice for him to be able to connect with other other caregivers um, and for him to see kind of the, the power of the young adult cancer movement and how many resources are out there and um, just how many how many great folks are part of it. So, it was a great. We we both really loved it. Yeah. It was excellent.
2: And uh you First Ascent is an amazing organization that does adventure retreats for young adults with cancer. What is your First Descent nickname?
3: Crush. I'm Crush. Why is that? <laughs> um the day I was diagnosed, I sent out an email. So I have like a sort of um not so secret obsession with alliteration. Um so the day I was diagnosed I sent out an email and invited everyone to team Katie Crushes Cancer. Um, and then just crush Crushes Cancer kind of became my thing and people started my friends started calling me crush, so I went into first defense already with a cancer nickname.
2: I'm trying to invent something alliterative now and I just can't, but I will do my best <laughs> over the course of the remaining interview. I want to talk about your, your choices, you know, living your life right now, you know, putting pen to paper, so to speak. You, are, uh, you, you were very passionate online, using Kickstarter to uh, come up with the money to fund this book called The Courage Club, A Radical Guide to Audacity, Living Beyond Cancer. True words have never been said. What has motivated you to take that leap into literature?
3: So, I've, I mean, I've kept a blog the entire, through my whole journey And it was really just, it was more a space for myself, you know, just like get out whatever crazy emotion I was feeling at the time. Um, It was a helpful place to get my friends and family to understand what I was going through, all of that stuff. Great place. It's just a good place to sort of document what was going on. Um, And I know tons of young adults have, have um, keep cancer blogs. Um, I think it's a great tool. Um, But the book was, the book was kind of me trying to pivot from from writing just for myself to writing to try to try to help serve the the broader young adult cancer community um so you know I just I'm sort of writing for that person who is maybe going through treatments now or maybe just finished treatment, and it just feels so shitty you know like it' you're just you feel like your life has been torn open you feel like You've lost all of these, maybe you've lost relationships or you've lost your career trajectory or the, like me, the ability to become a mother, um, which was so hard for me to handle. Um, so, you know, there's so much loss and and yet at the same time, like our lives, we know that we can't take our lives for granted. Our lives might be shorter than we wanted. They might, um, you know, cancer sort of threatens that. So how do we make the most out of our the time we have left after having gone through such difficult crisis and trauma and all of that so that's kind of what the book is about and 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 why i decided to to write it yeah and the kickstarter's just been crazy um
2: so what would be your i guess like so i'm rhetorically newly diagnosed i find your book i'm scared out of my mind what are some of the things i could learn from reading your book what do you hope to impart to the next you
3: you know, I think a lot of it is about um, a lot of it is about trying to be sort of gentle and kind and compassionate with yourself. Um, so you know cancer really does have a way, and cancer treatments have a way of just kind of beating us up and spitting us out the other side. Um, and it's easy to um, to feel like we're going crazy. It's easy to feel overwhelmed by the emotions that come along with all of that. Um, So a big part of it is like is like to- give yourself a break because um, you totally deserve one. Um, but it's also about connecting. Like I think I came out of my first year of treatment feeling just disconnected from myself, from my friends, from the world around me. Um, and so a lot of it is like, how do we connect to like how can you know going camping for a weekend, connecting to nature, kind of the idea of first descent, Like how can that help us get through? How can um connecting to something like food like what we're eating, you know I think a lot of cancer patients become like afraid of food, like am I allowed to eat sugar am I allowed to, what should I you know should I be eating meat or not, or what you know um so just like connecting to the to ourselves and the world around us is kind um, a big part of the message
2: So let's talk a little bit about, and I, I don't want to just like have it be this this uh, glanced over comment um you can't be a mom and yeah fertility over the course of the last 10 years people ask me well why young adults and the one answer that just not shuts them up because that sounds mean but that that helps them wrap their head around why we're uniquely age specific is parenting the civil liberty to be a mom or a dad to have as many kids as you so please is taken away from you in many, many cases. And in the cases it doesn't have to be, you're still not made aware of that risk to begin with.
3: Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I, I was actually one of the lucky ones, I feel like, in that, in that uh, early on, um, because they basically said to me, they were like, handed me my diagnosis, and then they said, what are your priorities? Which I thought was kind of a weird question to ask a newly diagnosed patient, but immediately I was like, don't you can take my boobs i don't care about them but i want to i want to keep my fertility whatever i have to do um and like i only knew that i should say that because i'd like googled it that weekend you know and found out that chemo can take your fertility um otherwise i I just had no knowledge um so i have embryos frozen i have i call them my space babies because it just feels like some weird space age technology space Um, babies (laughs) (laughs) But um but lots of other you know, at this point, um I mean I'm just I'm on treatments all the time. I don't know if I'll ever be off them. I don't know if I'll you know, I don't know if I'll ever get to a point my cancer is not stable, it continues to progress. So, you know, I don't know if that I'll ever get to a point where my my cancer was stable enough that I would feel safe enough to say, Okay, let's, you know, start a family. Um really anything that requires looking more than three months in the future It's just tough, I think, for a lot of stage four cancer patients. Um, So, but losing the ability to become a mother, um, I think, is probably the most devastating part of this whole journey for me. Um, Because that was like that was it for me. Like I was, my mom was a midwife when I was growing up. I was surrounded by babies. Like that's all I like. That's all I cared about. That's all I wanted to do when I when I got older. And we were actually planning to start a family or trying for a family the month that I got diagnosed. Um,
2: so just one of those things. So, um, w- w- so I mean, w- with a few, just a minute or so left, I mean, this episode we started out is about risk. We're going to be speaking with a notable uh, cancer researcher on risk and a young adult survivor herself whose sister had breast cancer her mother had breast cancer. Um, are Do you have siblings, or is is there a way to figure out how this might be hereditary in the the other uh, parts of your family per se
3: um I have a younger brother um and um but no, like I said I haven't yet tested tested positive for any um known um cancer you know genes that are connected to cancer um so but i mean i i know this is, this is like a little bit out of the box of the, I think the idea that you're covering, but, um, but, you know, we're all at risk for cancer Um, and I'm like a huge proponent in my, in my, among my family and friends and and everybody about, you know, doing everything that you can to prevent um, cancer just through, you know, lifestyle choices and, and things like that. So that's really where the conversation is for me because I don't have like a specific thing to point to for my family to get tested or, you know, anything like that. Right.
2: Well, Katie Campbell, living with uh, stage four, triple negative breast cancer, stage 30, she's 32 years old now. Her forthcoming book, The Courage Club, A Radical Guide to Audacity Living Beyond Cancer. What is the website where people can learn more about the book?
3: Um, So right now it's, um, like I said, it's up on Kickstarter. So you can, um, if you just search uh, Courage Club and Kickstarter, you'll find it, or you can go to um, bit.ly, Uh, forward slash Courage Club Kickstarter. Um, Or you can go to com and you'll find stuff there
2: as well. Katie, thank uh, thank you. God bless, and hopefully we'll see you again very soon.
3: Thanks so much, Matt. I really appreciate it. Take care.
2: (laughs) Katie Campbell, everyone. All right, and now the news. Hello, I'm Kent Brockman, and this is Eye on Cancer. Just the facts, ma'am.
1: Head on over to events.stupidcancer.org. That's events.stupidcancer.org. Sign up for meetup alerts and never miss a meetup again. If you'd like to learn more about hosting your own stupid cancer meetup, visit stupidcancer.org. Okay, there are events happening in New York, Baltimore, Chapel Hill, West Chicago, Cherry Hill, and San Diego.
2: No one should face cancer alone because isolation sucks. Now, you can get instant anonymous peer support on your mobile device with Instapeer, our free mobile app for iOS and Android devices. Create your account and privately message with fellow patients, survivors, or caregivers who have been there and walked in your shoes. Join our mobile community of thousands right now on your mobile device, Instapeer.
1: We've launched a newsfeed aggregator on Tumblr for all the articles, blogs, and stories we couldn't possibly have the time to post on social media. Check out what we're reading 24-7 and don't miss a beat. Subscribe at stupidcancer.org slash feed.
2: If you've not yet checked out the stupid cancer community forums, you are missing out. Join thousands of your peers in a safe and meaningful environment to get connected and swap stories to learn from one another and foster the young adult cancer conversation. With hundreds of topics, discussion groups, and issues to choose. It is a great place to get busy living. Learn more at stupidcancer.org slash community.
1: Support our programs and services by heading over to stupidcancerstore.org. You'll feel great and look great in your new Stupid Cancer gear. That's stupidcancerstore.org. Be proud. Wear Stupid Cancer.
2: And that's your Stupid Cancer News. Oncologist and cancer gene hunter Theodore Ross has written a comprehensive and authoritative go-to for people facing genetic predisposition for cancer. The book is called A Cancer in the Family with a form by Siddhartha Mukherjee, one of my all-time besties, author of The Emperor of All Maladies. Please welcome to the show, Theo, Dr. Theodore Ross. Welcome to the show. It's a pleasure to have you.
0: Hi, Matthew.
2: Yes, wonderful, wonderful. This is a very, very relevant topic to our audience, the young adult cancer community. Risk, uh, risk management, risk reduction. Um, we, we we often take uh, some challenge with the word prevention, and mm-hmm. screenings are a factor here. And you know, hereditary risk, and we're mm-hmm. such a small percentage to begin with, but disproportionately at genetic predisposition to cancer. And uh, I, I listened to your, your interview with Terry Gross on NPR. Fascinating. And I'm excited to be speaking with you about how all of this incredible science is becoming applicable in the real world and mm-hmm. how academia is building a bridge to the average patient with regard to it.
0: Well, especially in, in the situation of stupid cancer. You know, people who have cancer before the age of 39... Genetics. Yeah. It's, I mean, like the, it's like saying plastics. It's, it's genetics.
2: It's your, it, you, and, and what control <laughs> can you have? I mean, I was born with brain cancer. It was congenital in utero, and it presented when I was 21 years old, but it sat in my head the whole time. You know, our first guest on the show here uh, had was diagnosed with triple negative breast cancer, stage 4 at the age of 30, vegetarian mm-hmm. no vegan, actually, athlete, rock climber, perfect health. You know, you mm-hmm. look into 80,000 people getting cancer every year under 40 years old. Is it all mm-hmm. just bad luck because of your genes?
0: Depending on the cancer, the chances are pretty good. So when you have one gene mutated and you've got two copies of your genes, when you have one gene mutated, you've got a head start. And so cancer happens earlier. So in terms of the first guest. Uh, the genetic predisposition to breast cancer is pretty likely.
2: So I, you, you talked a lot about you know, how you know, genes can turn good cells into bad cells. What role, and this may be a stretch mm-hmm. here, you know, you know, the, there are certain things you can and can't control in life. You can control mm-hmm. what you eat, how you move. You really can't mm-hmm. control what you breathe. Or you know the soil or things like that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Have you done any uh, any uh, thought provoking insight into the sort of the extramural activities that can contribute to the triggers of genetic mutation?
0: Well, um, when you say genetic mutations, we're we're talking we've got inherited versus the genes are mutated somatically. And in terms of inherited mutations, there's really nothing you can do because who your daddy and is is who your daddy is, uh, same with your mom, uh, what you can do about that if you know that you have that. So, for example, if the first um, guest on the show were to know that she had a mutation in one of the you know, breast cancer-causing genes, whether it's CHECK2 or BRCA1 or BRCA2, et cetera, then you can do something about that by taking uh, greater surveillance, You know, watching the organs at risk or even more aggressively removing them. So prophylactic surgeries. I don't know. I unfortunately didn't hear that first part, but I will tomorrow, um, whether or not she had both of her breasts removed, and does she know whether or not she has a mutation?
2: Yeah, uh, she does know that she has the triple negative mutation, not BRCA, and she had a prophylactic bilateral mastectomy, but she did not have an uvorectomy yet. And she's... But what,
0: what mutation did she have then?
2: Oh, I, I would have to go back and listen to yeah, the... Uh, to okay. the, to the... <laughs>
0: I had a BRCA1 mutation so I'm really open about that as you know.
2: Well, uh, yeah, and your story is fascinating because you were pretty much surrounded by yes. cancer in your whole family and 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 then you you yourself was diagnosed with melanoma as as a younger person and yes. then all of a sudden wow. So yes. th- the question is do you really have to have a point of entry of diagnosis to get risk assessment?
0: No. I I mean, I think looking into your family history is really important. There are some people who don't have that. Some people have very small families. Some people were adopted, etc. But if you've got a large enough family and you have signs in your family, positive signs. So in my family, almost all my siblings had young adult cancers. So I had a sister with breast cancer in her 30s, a brother with testicular cancer in his 20s, and so at that point, there was enough of a sign that if I had been a smart person instead of a stupid person, I would have said, wow, that's, that's really significant. We might want to look into the genetics here. But I was um, a little bit in denial.
2: Well, yeah, and, and that's a great word because, you know, younger people aren't typically predisposed to um, mortality or, or vulnerability. Yeah. You're at a point. They're immortal. Yeah. Well, you're supposed to be, right? I mean, why wouldn't you? What's the point of being 19 and jumping off roofs if you don't feel immortal?
0: Exactly. You should be able to be immortal, but unfortunately, we're not all immortal. No. So, um, you know, that truthiness, as uh, Colbert would say,
2: truthiness only
0: takes you so far.
2: So, where is the reality check in, in your in your perspective on? You know mm-hmm. the you know so I think we're both Jewish. The sechel, the wherewithal, the the uh, preemptive, you know, interest in yes. in understanding risk. Where could that possibly hit you in your life to say I should get screened out of nowhere?
0: Well, I you know obviously if you have a family history like the one I described for myself, then you know I I don't I don't think it is right that I just denied the whole thing. I think it's really important to say, wow, is, is there something I can do about this? And there's a lot of help. You can talk to a genetic counselor they're all over the place. you can uh, I have a book I just published. You can read that. Um, but really, the reality is if you 've got a family history of diseases where there may be something you can do about it to prolong your life, uh, i just I beg people to not do what I did.
2: Well yeah, and again, like we're looking at how young adult cancer is is now biologically it's been been shown in the literature and epidemiology it's a biologically different type of cancer than the same cancer in someone that presents in their mature years over 50 55 60 years Uh, old yes
0: they are totally like we everybody says there's many many cancers many many diseases and when it's in young people it's a different disease but it's also has potentially has a genetic component, and it have, if you have a genetic component, you can be the leader in your family. You can discover that you have a mutation, then other people in your family can be tested, and you can save lives, not
2: just your own. So where would that conversation start? I'm diagnosed with cancer. I, how would I have any idea what even any of this means if I'm just walking in the door and everything's Charlie Brown teacher? Is it yeah. the physician's responsibility to talk about risk and gen- genetics? Well.
0: You know, the problem with we've, that we're running into right now is, yes, ultimately it is the physician's responsibility to say, hey, you know, you're a young person with cancer. Let's look at your family history. Maybe you do have a genetic predisposition. Let's have you see our local genetic counselor. They take a stronger family history, then they test you for a gene. That's the ideal uh, sequence of events. Unfortunately, in medical school, we don't get trained this way. We don't have genetic training. We have, you know, maybe... A, a couple of classes. Hopefully that's going to change as genetics has gotten more and more complex. We've sequenced genomes. We're discovering more and more genes. And so I think it's going to change. But there's not as much knowledge in your physicians as you would think about this. I mean, myself, I, didn't, I wasn't educated enough to know. Back when I was thinking about it, I was only thinking about BRCA1 and BRCA2. Now we're testing for 30 genes on panels, 40 genes. Um, physicians just don't know. And so it is partly your responsibility to be in the know, to be part of Stupid Cancer, and Stupid Cancer can put on their website. If you're young and you have cancer, maybe you want to think about a genetic predisposition. Um, but we, there are multiple ways to get to know this. But this is information. This is knowledge that uh, hasn't been transmitted yet. So now awareness is kind of there, but knowledge is not.
2: Well, I, I couldn't agree more with that. You were actually a trendsetter, you know, 12 years ago. You had a prophylactic bilateral mastectomy. Way before Angelina Jolie made it famous. Well, you
0: know, thank God she did it, though. I mean, she's an example of getting people aware. You know, physicians can't do what she did. She used her, you know, beautifulness and her stardom to change the world.
2: No, and it it made a real difference. I'm actually curious if you have any data to suggest that there have been more prophylactic mastectomies because of the the awareness of genetic risk because of that.
0: Yes, for sure. Yes, we call it the Jolie effect. Oh, really?
2: That's pretty cool. (laughs) Yes.
0: Yes, it's been published.
2: So we we have a running joke, which is you know kind of like sick the sick cancer humor that only exists in our space yeah. around how yeah. many body parts can you live without to reduce your risk of getting cancer?
0: Well, true. Yes, yeah, it's, like, it's a it's a good question. It's a good question. Uh, you can get rid of a lot of them.
2: A lot of them. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So so what what was your your uh, I guess in. Well, first of all, how did you get into this? This is a very nuanced, emerging science that is fascinating. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. like you said, the awareness is there, but the knowledge isn't. How did right. you get into this, and what are your hopes to get this into the, more of the mind's eye of the public?
0: Okay. How did I get into it? Well, it's really interesting. So I had been working at the University of Michigan for 12 years. I had a basic science lab. I was seeing breast cancer patients and had always wanted to work on BRCA. I wanted BRCA2 and wanted to be more into cancer genetics, but it never really had the opportunity, you know, whether it was a grant issue or whatever. So then when we moved to Dallas where I live now at UT Southwestern I was given the opportunity to run their cancer genetics program. And when I got to Dallas and I had to run the cancer genetics program, I realized I didn't know anything about cancer genetics. And so I figured one way to learn about cancer genetics is to write a book. Um and so I started writing it sort of as a text to just learn and teach myself and realized how complicated it was and how more complicated it was getting. And also, we sequenced a bunch of patients from our cancer genetics program. We sequenced our whole genome. And from that, I learned a ton. I learned about how complicated it is and that, like you said, there's awareness and there's knowledge. And we're aware we can sequence a genome, but we are at the before preschool level when it comes to understanding it. So that's how I got into it. Um, what was the second part of the question? Well,
2: what what is I mean outside of conversations with the public and with uh, like with medical mm-hmm. education, how can this get trickled down to patient decision making?
0: Mm. I I think we just got to keep hammering away. Um, you know, I hope that I can you know get my book to the people that need it. People who are young young people with cancer or people with family histories of cancer, people who are worried that they might have a genetic syndrome, hopefully. You know, people who gene- do genetic testing will realize it's not just the test that matters, but it's making sure the patients are seeing counselors who can educate them. The genetic counselors are manna from heaven. They're amazing. They will, you know, take you through each step. They will take you through your family history. They'll verify your family history. They'll call hospitals to get, you know, figure out whether that ovarian cancer was a cervical cancer rather than ovarian cancer, that kind of thing. They'll help you talk to your family. Um so I think one of the portals is the counselor. Other portal is just continuing to talk about it, like putting it on. Yeah, I'm I'm really hoping you you know in terms of stupid cancer, you guys will talk more about genetics.
2: Oh, and we do. We we it's it's a significant issue. And you're talking about. I mean, we we are not as of right now. Our larger community is they're already done. Like they they have already had yeah. cancer. Yeah. They're either in treatment now. Yeah. The, the opportunities are now. Oh, wh- how can I be smart about you know making making my siblings know or or whatever yeah. that is now. So like they're they're already drinking the Kool Aid. We're talking like how do we get the uninitiated to be aware of this? Uh, there was a very sobering blog piece out of Macmillan last year. I'm going to do a terrible job botching it, but it talked about how cancer is mm-hmm. really a combination of environment, genetics, and bad luck. And yes. Yeah. It's a tough pill to swallow when we're pushed cure every single day. How do you reconcile that? Because I have a problem doing that.
0: Reconciling
2: that... that if cancer is all bad luck, what is cure?
0: Oh, well, we want to prevent it from happening.
2: Right. But what would that look like, let's say, in, in the rarer cancers in the young adult community? How could you, how would, how would this young woman have, like, could you one day maybe walk into Dwayne Reed and get a, a cancer screening, you know, spit test? And Well, could, you know. right,
0: yes. So she would, she, the, the ideal situation with her would be that she would have known long before she got her cancer that she had this predisposition. And then with that, she would have had the opportunity to take actions to prevent it from happening to her
2: so i'm fascinated by this line of thinking because it sounds very star trek how far away are we from that actually being a pragmatic thing and where would that intervention have to happen at what point in your life to get Mm -hmm. that risk assessment
0: well how old is she
2: she's thirty two now she was thirty when she was diagnosed
0: So we we test our patients when it comes to these mutations that predispose patients to breast cancer uh, at that early of an age. We start screening our patients at 25, 20. Uh, We even offer prophylactic surgeries at that point. So it's there for some things. Now, here's, here's a good way to think about it. There's this retrospective kind of perspective one can have. So we discovered BRCA1 and BRCA2 as genes that predispose people to these hereditary breast and ovarian cancer syndromes. And we discovered these in the mid-90s. And at the time when we would say, oh gosh, that patient probably has one of those mutations, we'd say, eh, why would we test them? We don't know what to do. We would have nothing to do. Now, 20 years later, we know exactly what to do and we can prevent cancer in these patients. So it took 20 years to figure out the answer, like how it would how would this all work? And that's the question you're asking. Yes. So I think it, it takes time. Each gene that we discovered that truly when broken leads to a predisposition syndrome to a particular type of cancer or to a, another kind of disease, once we discover that gene, then I think it'll take 10, 20 years before we figure out what the next step is to prevent the disease. And of course, there's all this new gene therapy stuff, which is a potential. It's an idea. Whether it's good or bad, we don't know. But well, something will happen. There's always progress, but it takes about 20 years to really answer that
2: question. No, and I, I completely agree with every, everything that you're saying. I'm, I'm just fascinated with the with the. I look at like the 23andMe, you know, test, which is mm-hmm. very has become very cheap and very consumer focused on, you know, oh, I'm allergic to caffeine or I shouldn't eat beets mm-hmm. or you know, whatever that is. Now, mm-hmm. is mm-hmm. it possible that there is a version of that one day that you know you'll you'll be able to just get over the counter at, mm-hmm. at any age? But that also is exciting from a, like a invincibility perspective. Would a teenager ever want to know their mm-hmm. cancer risk, and how would you make that happen? It's right. An, it's an interesting conversation. Would that ever
0: happen? Will there be an over-the-counter test, genetic test, where you'd just be able to test every one of our genes and all the intervening sequences? You're basically saying a whole genome. You know, it's so complicated. I just don't see that ever happening. I still think it's going to be in the realm of medicine where... We may test people. You know, the doctor may get a genome on you, and that may be part of your medical record. There may be genes in there that will figure out have a mutation that could predispose you to something. But I don't think it's going to be over-the-counter, and you'll just get it in the the teenager. And I think instead the clinical data will dictate when the doctor says you need to worry about X, Y, or Z. All
2: right, I'm going to come out to Texas, and we're going to write a sci-fi screenplay.
0: Okay.
2: That's our that's that's our date. We're running a movie. Yeah. Okay? We're going to we're going to build the future in film. Uh, perfect. Except perfect. for Jews because people like us were just screwed genetically anyway, so this is everyone else. <laughs> uh so let's talk about the book. We have a few minutes left. Uh, sure. Cancer in the family. Uh Sid uh, I know Sid like I know him Sid. Uh I I'm in awe of him. Um yeah. I've met him several times. The book it really changed a lot. Um Yeah. What is the the purpose and the goal of the book and what are you hoping people get out of it
0: well the the book is for people who are interested in cancer genetics people who are worried that they might have a cancer genetic syndrome uh... and they, it starts out with just saying you know give, hoping saying listen i had this experience myself i'm going to share it with you and maybe it'll help you get the courage to think about this get a genetic analysis take actions uh I hope that the book will educate people like we talked about earlier about this, not just patients, but also physicians and even genetic counselors about how we think about things when we're thinking of we're a patient versus a doctor versus a scientist. Um, I just tell it in multiple views. Um, I, I talk a lot in the book about your family and talking to your family and uh, kind of family politics of cancer secrecy, and the psychology around that and uh and then also i talk a lot in the book and hope to educate people about research and how important it is there are so many genes we don't know anything about and so we want all of patients with cancer to have a genetic analysis in the research realm so that we can put that all together and like you said have this future sci-fi uh time where we'll just sequence your genome and we'll tell you when you need to worry about what. what so it's a book to you know help people figure out what to do with their genetics
2: no, and it it is fascinating, and this is the new age now. I mean, look how far we've come, and we you know we can talk briefly or just touch on the, the, all these new immunotherapy protocols that are coming on. You know mm-hmm. that, that you can now get sequenced, and they can do they can run the the twenty thousand gene sequence now in like a day for, you know, was it five thousand dollars at this point? They can sequence your whole body in some places, and yeah. <laughs> match you up with a particular protocol that is specific to your genome. And it somehow miraculously helps your body heal.
0: Well, yeah, I mean, it's, it's we're not there with that, and you know, we have not tested whether sequencing a tumor uh, is a standard thing to do that will you know improve our treatments. You know, this is still a research effort. Whether or not that's true or not is not clear. I mean, no. there are some things we can sequence where clearly we will. You know, we have a. If we have that mutation, we know to use drug X. But in general, we're still we're still taking baby
2: steps. No, and I agree. And, and until we have big data and massive biobanks and public adoption and all these, and you, know, the, the, you know, it's the premise behind a lot of the moonshot philosophy, which I think is very promising. It's nice to mm-hmm. have people at least rallying around something that isn't, you know, the napalming of your body and and all mm-hmm. just you know total total you know obliteration of your everything and hopefully the good parts grow back i think we're beyond uh that that old school science at this point but you know it's it's just exciting to me Uh, the last part i want to bring up is i was again listening to your amazing interview with terry gross and she brought up the issues of discrimination for having genetic mutations Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. hey i'm thinking of like the x-men movies but besides that you know Mm -hmm. employment is we're a young adult community. We're just getting our Mm -hmm. lives together, just getting our jobs, and our resumes are out there, and we're on Facebook, and we share our social footprint, and how do we avoid the stigma and maybe not the actual HR action against discrimination of who we are in the workplace? And I didn't even know this. The Genetic Information Non-Discrimination Act of 2008 does Mm -hmm. a really good job. Can you talk about that?
0: Well, it's it's pretty good. It uh, you know it does prevent you from being you know if you if they find out that you've got a mutation, uh, you know you can't have you, you cannot be discriminated against when it comes to health insurance or employment. Uh, it leaves out some things, unfortunately. So life insurance is one of those. Uh, although life insurance companies, a lot of them, I need to do a survey of this, but those that I've spoken to say that if you learn your mutation and you do what we recommend, you know, that what the physicians recommend you do to prevent you from getting cancer as a result of that, so you have your prophylactic surgeries. They consider you like a person who stopped smoking, which is a remarkable thing. Um, but still, they can discriminate if they want. Um, so the Genetic Information Non Discrimination Act of 2008 is wonderful in the sense that it really does put up some barriers for. Your employer and your health insurer, but not for your life insurer and uh disability
2: insurance so before we go, how are you feeling and how is your family doing?
0: Oh my family is great. I was terrified that they would uh, be worried about the book because I outed most of them <laughs> but uh you know it, it turned out okay i have uh, I still have my family they uh, are not disgruntled um, we we so my sister did die of breast cancer in her late 30s so i'm sorry about that that. that's uh that's a tough one but other than that we're
1: we're doing great
2: well theodora ross directs the cancer genetics program at the university of texas southwestern medical center author of the book a cancer in the family with a forward by siddhartha Mukherjee. thank you so much for sharing everything i look forward to meeting you one day to build that sci-fi movie script
0: i look forward to it too matthew thank you thank
2: you take care All righty, and now it's time for our closing sequence.
1: Prepare to activate. Uh, I hear there's rumors
2: on the uh, internets. You ever seen a grown man
3: naked? And so, to
1: all of you, a fond farewell.
2: Hooray, I'm
1: helping. You are a meathead.
2: Oh, Magoo, you've
1: done it again.
2: That was so terrible, I think you gave me cancer.
1: Okay, folks, that's our show, the 388th episode of The Stupid Cancer Show. Never miss an episode by subscribing to the podcast on iTunes or following us on SoundCloud. I'd
2: like to thank our guests, Katie Campbell and Dr. Theodore Ross, for joining us on the program. Broadcasting since 2007, The Stupid Cancer Show is in production of Stupid Cancer, the largest charity comprehensively addressing young adult cancer, online at stupidcancer.org coming to you from the chemo deck and on behalf of my team here at the stupid cancer show we hope you had as much fun as we did poking a stick at stupid cancer thank you for listening and we'll see you right back here on the next exciting podcast of the stupid cancer show goodbye folks